Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello there, guys. We're back again for the final installment of our daily transfer news episodes, the beautiful game podcast and Eurosport in collaboration throughout this month have been bringing you daily news and updates and chatting through all of the rumours that have come and gone in this transfer window. And now we're going to have a bit of a roundup with the deadline day passing yesterday. And we're going to go through and speak about the, the best transfers, the worst transfers, and also the deals that we felt should have happened. Um, we're going to kick things off just with our general thoughts on the deadline day itself. Um, we're going to start off with you, Doc. From an overall perspective, how do you feel the deadline day went? You'll put me on the spot, Budge. Um, <laughs> quieter than usual, but busier than I actually expected. Um, obviously, at the start of the month, it was, was going to be one of the quietest transfer windows in the history of Premier League. And, you know, no one's got money. But I think towards the back end of the window, we saw more deals getting done and I think yesterday in my opinion the shock of the transfer window was Joshua King to Everton because this is a player that was previously linked to West Ham and with Josh King I rate him I think he's a very very good forward but in my opinion he's almost down tools at Bournemouth no goals this season and this is a player that really and truly should be ripping up the championship because he's better than the championship but I think Maybe Everton can give him that new lease of life. And I think that will ease the burden on Richarlison and Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who are going through a goal drought at the moment. So I think Josh King was the surprise of the window for me there. In terms of the overall roundup, I think Arsenal done business. Good business, should I say. Liverpool done some good business at the back end of it. Um, Fulham getting in Josh Madger from France, done some good business. So yeah, I'll say probably those three clubs are probably done the best business in this transfer window. Very, very interesting, particularly on that point around Josh King to Everton. I think that one certainly took most of us by surprise. And it'd be interesting to see, you know, just how he slots into that start in 11 at Everton, uh, which I'm sure we'll see in the, in the coming weeks. Um, OK, Pete, let us know what your thoughts on the, uh, the overall uh, transfer uh, deadline day was. I uh, sort of echo what Todd said, really. It was quite a quiet window and then we got a lot of business that we didn't really expect obviously 
you wonder how busy Liverpool might have been if they didn't have so many defensive injuries and then it would have been a little bit quieter. Uh, thinking bigger picture, I'm just interested to sort of see longer term whether this is the start of something or just a one-off blip. Obviously, the January transfer window has been struggling for a while, but I still think that this was really low compared to what we see usually in January. And I do think that we're really starting to see the effects of the pandemic on the financials of the clubs. I do wonder perhaps whether this might speak to a wider issue, though. I think a lot of clubs are being very badly managed financially. We saw in England when the first lockdown came on how clubs like Spurs and Liverpool asked for the government bailouts. Real Madrid and Barcelona have both been very vocal in various camps about how badly they're doing financially. A lot of these clubs, if you don't have a an owner who can sort of support you, then it turns out a lot of these clubs are really just relying on the TV money and the fan the fan money. And obviously one of those isn't there. A lot of the big leagues are now going to be having to negotiate deals in the next year or two um, with the TV companies. The TV companies are going to be hit hard as well. They're going to want to try and offer less. We've obviously seen the chaos in France with their TV deal. So we always sort of thought that football's transfer bubble would burst at some point. And I wonder if this is the little prick that it needed. And now we're going to see wider repercussions over the next sort of 18 months to two years. Some very, very valid points raised there, Pete. Really, really interesting. Um, it's certainly when you speak about the, the bigger picture and and the knock-on effect that this is going to have in, in the long term, I think it is going to be certainly one that will be interesting for us to keep an eye on uh, in, in the coming and subsequent transfer windows. Um, going, going to you now, Dej, what about you in terms of your thoughts on, on deadline day yesterday? Were you uh, surprised by any particular moves? Um, yeah, Josh Major to Fulham. That was a very, very surprising one. This is a player that made his mark in England when he was at Sunderland. He caught the eye, bursting onto the scene, got his move to France. Done well at Bordeaux in his first season, but this season so far, he's been starting off the bench. And when I look at what Fulham need, I think he fits the profile to a T. When I watch Fulham's games, they have a lot of opportunities, but they just fail to hit the back of the net. And I think this project has maybe slightly moved on from Mitrovic in terms of the way Scott Parker wants to play. He's much more of a direct centre forward. Their profile now is sit in that low block, defend deep and spring off onto the counter attack. And I think Josh Madger's attributes fits into that system well. But as we mentioned about the transfer dealings, I was a bit surprised towards the end of the window, the volume of deals that were happening you saw the shock of Minamino to Southampton, Josh King to Everton. And January for me, notoriously, has been a window where clubs try and plug the gaps in terms of injuries or you just get an opportunity that you just can't pass up. And that's what we saw in this window. We saw Liverpool filling the gaps with those defensive injuries and the opportunity like Josh King going to Everton. That's a deal that you can't really miss up on. And he can provide that squad depth for Everton going forward. So, yeah, it was an interesting one. A lot of strange dealings, but yeah, it was all good. Yeah, very interesting that you, you, you uh, raised the point about the, the volume of deals being done, um, particularly because, of course, with the wider context around the pandemic, the volume of loan deals that, that were being done, yeah. you know, uh, loan deals with potential options to, to buy or, or even obligations to buy uh, further down the line. And I mean, I, I certainly echo all the, the sentiment that you guys have raised around how, how underwhelming the deadline day was in, in, in a general sense. Mm. 
but I think it's completely in line with expectation given the, the, the current climate. And I mean, we, we've seen clubs having to take out large uh, loans to help with cash, cash flow. So, you know, the current pandemic me means that it's really difficult for clubs to forecast and, and at least have a better steer and idea on, on numbers and how much they can spend. And so those sort of short-term loan deals to plug the gaps, as you said there, Dej, make all the sense in the world if, if there are gaps to fill in, in uh, their respective teams. Thanks for that, guys. We're going to move into the next segment of today, uh, and that is chatting about the best signings of the transfer window. So the, the ones that uh, stuck out head and shoulders above the rest for, for value in terms of what those signings add to um, the teams that they're joining and, and so on and so forth. Uh, Pete, we're going to kick off with you on, on this one. Um, out of all of the business that was done in Europe this, this January, which was the, the one single deal that you felt was, was the best? Well, I'm actually going to go for one that happened just before the window opened, really, and that was uh, Dominic Sobazalai moving from RB Salzburg to RB Leipzig. Um, he was a player who most of Europe wanted. I know of the Premier League teams, Arsenal were probably linked the most. That release clause was really too good to pass up. Yeah. Obviously, he hasn't made um, his mark yet for Leipzig due to the injury he had when he moved. But I'm sure, um, I think the latest is that we're going to see him at some point in the next week or two. And if there's any sort of team you'd have wanted Sobberslai to move to, it has to be Julian Nagelsmann's Leipzig. I mean, he's going to be so much fun in that. He's either going to be playing, you think, high up the pitch, creating the space or the chances, or I could even see him eventually moving deeper, bursting forward with that energy, and you know he's going to be on free kick straight away. I think there's an argument to be made that Leipzig are probably the best team to watch in Europe. I can't think of anyone else I'd rather watch. And adding him it just takes it to a whole new level. And also, obviously, it continues with the perfect evolution of their business model. They know they're going to be able to sell him off in probably not this summer, but maybe the summer after for at least a 15, 20 million euro profit. I mean, it's a no-brainer. It's such a good deal for them. Yeah, 100%. Uh, certainly got to agree with you on that one, Pete. Um, I think it is a, a really a clever move. He's obviously following the... Uh, the footsteps of uh, Deo Abamencano and, and Nabi Keita, who also uh, made that famed move from um, Salzburg to, to Leipzig. And of course, still really young, uh, only 20, so got a lot of developing still to do. Um, and of course, under a great manager, as you mentioned, in, in, in Julian Nagelsmann, I think um, it's, it's a great opportunity for him to continue his development, but take that sort of step up without there being a whole heap of, of pressure added onto him. You can imagine, you know, there were, there were loads of suitors for his signature, as you mentioned, given the uh, price tag. Um, but I think if he had moved to the Premier League uh, in this window, there might have been a bit more pressure uh, on his shoulders and, and, and he would have been expected to deliver, um, you know, much, much sooner and not perhaps given the time to, to bed in. So I think the move is certainly a good one. For, it makes sense for him and, and of course, for, for Leipzig too. Moving on to you now, Dej, which transfer do you feel was the, the pick of the bunch? I think Takumi Minamino to Southampton. That one happened at the 11th hour. And when I saw it, I was like, huh, what? This is shocking. But the more and more I started to process it, the more it made sense. I mean, when you look at him since he's come to the Premier League, he's found it difficult to get a run of games. And Liverpool's front three, you know, Salah, Mane, Firmino, and now Hotter. 
added to the fold. It's very, very difficult to break in that. So he's been forced to have the other parents here and there. And rhythm is so important in football. I can't stress that enough, especially as a forward player. And when you look at Southampton, they call Hassan Hartl the Alpine Klopp. They play a similar <laughs> style of football. So yeah. you imagine this system will suit him down to a T. Hassan Hartl likes to play a 4-2-2-2. And he can fit in in any of the central positions, but also into the two behind the striker. So I think this is a signing that makes sense. He can find his feet. And importantly, this is a loan without option to buy. So for me, this is not you know, a despite or something bad against Minamino, this is something productive and that can help him long-term so he can play the 17 games, come into the Premier League next season with Liverpool and try and hit the ground running. So I think that was the deal that really blew my mind away. And I think just to add to what um, Dez said, like, it's interesting because his last start for Liverpool was against Crystal Palace and that was arguably his best performance in a Liverpool shirt. Got a goal, got an assist, looked very sharp you know, had the movement in between the lines. So it surprises me that he hasn't featured more because it seems like he was getting into good form. But as Des said, I think this low move will, will work for him. I think Southampton deserve a lot of credit for this, actually, because I think obviously the relationship between the two clubs, particularly the fan base, is a little bit weird. I think Southampton fans don't always like the way Liverpool fans will treat their club. And I think there was a risk from Southampton's side with the no option to buy, I think you can sort of see it as, well, we're just, why are we going to develop their player for them? Like, what does that do for us? But actually, I think as we discussed earlier, like it's a perfect signing because then Minamino can come in for six months or so. He's going to be able to come in, start, play regularly. He's going to get better. He's going to make Southampton better. But also it means that there's, if they don't like him for whatever reason, they're under no obligations to buy him or do anything else or keep him for another year. So they can go into the market in the summer when there's probably going to be more options. I think a lot of clubs might have, especially the the ones who are sort of seeing sixth attempt, would look at the big six and be like, well, I don't want to just develop your player for you. But actually, I think there's an awareness from Stanton that they can actually get something out of this as well. Yeah, most certainly. I think we're seeing it happen more and more often in uh, transfers, particularly loan deals now. You know, that the parent club will want a, a structured plan of how the, the manager and the team um, that, that a player is, be, uh, is being loaned to, um, how they set up, how they play, and how that player fits into that. And, you know, you, you touched on that um, when you mentioned it earlier, Dej, about the fact that Southampton and uh, Liverpool, there, there are certainly parallels to draw in terms of the, the philosophy of both managers and the way both teams play. And I'm sure that that probably would have had some bearing in that decision to allow Minamino to, to, to move uh, over to Southampton. And I think they've done brilliant um, tr uh, transfer business, not just with the Minamino deal, but just in, in, in previous windows, the, you know, the kind of profile of player that they're requiring. Um, they're certainly building the project for the future. And I think it will be one to really look out for in, in, in future. Um, of course, they'll have to do whatever they can to hold on to such a talented manager like Hassan Hutzel. Um, but, you know, making smart signings and, and acquisitions certainly will go a long way to, to, to help him um, you know, keep him at the club. So uh, uh, certainly a, an interesting one. Doc, so round us off then, what was the uh, transfer uh, that really, really, you know, got your attention? What was the, the best one for you? Yeah, I'm going to go for another deadline um, day signing that actually went to the wire and it's the Turkish um, centre-back Ozan Kabak. Um, I think this was really important for Liverpool to get done. I'm not 
necessarily saying that he's the best signing of the window, but I think from a Liverpool perspective, it's the most important signing they could have made because, you know, as we've seen, Van Dijk suffered a terrible injury. Joe Gomez is injured for the season. And Matip has joined the list of, you know, players injured for the rest of the season. And I think Liverpool's title chances and European hopes hinges on whether Kabak can hit the ground running. And David Wagner has had, you know, glowing words about the player saying that he's an excellent centre-half. He's going to be a top defender. And obviously Klopp and Wagner are very close friends. So that recommendation is a very certified recommendation. So I feel if Kabak can hit the ground running, Liverpool are going to have a good end to the season. And I feel another layer that this adds is that Jordan Henderson can now be moved into centre midfield because Liverpool have the option of playing Ben Davis and Kabak at centre-back and potentially pushing Henderson, who I think is one of the top three centre midfielders in the Premier League, and Fabinho, who I feel is the best defensive midfielder in the Premier League, back into their best positions. So for me, Kabak is the signing of the window. And this signing's got a lot of attention because people are saying, oh, you're, you're signing players for, from a relegation-threatened club and... When you look at the history of Liverpool signings with Genie Wijnaldum, Andy Robertson, these are players that have played for relegation-stricken clubs and have come into an environment where they're playing with better players and they thrive. So I think Kabak, he will be thinking, you know what, I've got the opportunity to make a mark. He's come out and said that he's, he looks up to Virgil van Dijk. He's got a T-shirt of his that he looks up to. So coming in and playing with him, or playing for the club that he plays for is a is a big big help to him, and I think, as Dot said, Liverpool's title hopes a large part of it will come down to how quickly he settles into the club. Can I just add on that? Both of you just said the same thing there, which is that Liverpool's title chances come down to how well Quebec settles in and hits the ground running. Everything we've seen so far from him suggests that he will do exactly that. This is a guy who captained his country in the other 17 years. He was starting for Galatasaray at 17 and 18. That is a big deal. If you're starting for a club like Galatasaray, that is a big deal. He went to Stuttgart, adjusted to Germany fine, became the rookie of the year there. Six months later, Schalke by him. He wasn't expected to start. He had to start because of injuries. Came in and looked great. Nothing seems to phase him. I think that this is such an intelligent signing from Liverpool. I know they wanted him in the summer. And I think Schalke thought that they were going to go and maybe push for the Europa, Europa League spots. So they didn't, they held on to him. Clearly that club has got a lot of issues. And now Liverpool are probably actually going to be able to get him for less than they would have done if they got him last year. And obviously there's a little bit of pressure in terms of he comes in straight away, but I think he can more than handle it. It's a great, great signing. And I think that's the key thing, Pete. This has been a long-term target for Liverpool. It's yeah. not a knee-jerk panic signing. This is a player that they liked in the summer and I think the fee that was quoted for him was €30 million. Euros. And now they've got the player on the loan to the end of the season and there's no obligation to buy. There's an option to buy for £80 million. What a steal from Liverpool. And you've got to big up Michael Edwards and the recruitment team again. Yeah. I know they keep coming up time <laughs> and time again. Every single window we talk about it, but Again, such marvellous work is going down at Liverpool. 100%. I think that that point about mentality is 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 one that certainly gets often uh, uh, overlooked quite often. And I remember even on our podcast, on the Beautiful Game podcast, we had an episode uh, called Mentality Monsters. 
that we dissected the, the mentality of the of the Liverpool side and and the kind of um, players that Klopp really really uh, tends to, to tends to trust and, and lean towards are those kind of players that can really you know be up against it. And given the fact that he's come from uh, a relegation scrap, and as you mentioned, uh, Pete, um, you know the, the the responsibilities that have been placed on his shoulders at such a tender age, you can just imagine he's going to be right up Jurgen Klopp's street. Uh, one that I wanted to um, mention to you guys as well, and that is um, the transfer of uh, um, Mbai Diang, um, who joined uh, West Brom this window. And I think it's an interesting one because, of course, we spoke uh, previously about just how desperate Sam Allardyce was to add goals into that West Brom team. You know, still at this point of the season, there are only two teams that have scored fewer goals than West Brom in uh, Sheffield um, United and Stoke. And he was heavily linked with uh, Christian Benteke throughout the window. And we thought that that would be a move that would be made possible because of the fact that uh, Palace had brought in a, a, a striker uh, on loan from, from Mines in, in Mateta. Um, but, you know, ultimately they went for uh, Diang. And I think it's a, it's a really smart and clever signing um, because he spent the past five seasons or so in Turkey uh, with a, a short spell in Belgium, um, temporarily last season. Um, but when you look at his goal scoring uh, record, he's scored goals wherever he's gone to. He, he's, a, he's a bona fide marksman. Um, and he signed for West Brom off the back of scoring nine goals in eight games for Galatasaray. He's a great physical presence, six foot four, he's quick, he's skillful, um, and he can bring other players into, uh, in, into play. Um, and I think, you know, having watched his interview when he arrived, what was really interesting is that he, he arrived and met up with his teammates um, this past Saturday at midday, and then he was thrown in at the deep end in um, their game uh, at the weekend. It was a 2-2 draw. Um, and he played the second half after having only met those his teammates a few hours before and got uh, the assist for uh, Matthews uh, Pereira uh, in that game. So, you know, after arriving on the Friday, meeting up on, on the Saturday, he's already in and chipping in with, with goals and, and assists. And I just think if he can hit the ground running, as it, as it seems that he could potentially do, um, he certainly will help Sam Allardyce's team uh, score more goals and, and, and perhaps develop some really good partnerships with Callum Robinson and, and Matthews Pereira. And I think ultimately, I, I always love the commercial aspect of, of, of deals. Commercially, it makes sense because the loan deal only cost West Brom uh, 1.4 million and Galatasaray are still paying his wages right up until the end of the season. So it is a no-brainer, as, as we like to say. And I think that also will be one that's really, really interesting to, to keep an eye on. We actually had uh, Benikafobi, um, who came on our podcast recently and spoke about the strength of the Turkish Super League. Um, of course, a lot of people will say, you know, he's, he's done it in, in Turkey. Can, can that translate to... Um, to, to the English Premier League. Um, and, and when Benikafobi was talking about it, he was saying that, you know, the strength of the league is like sort of the, the bottom half of the table to in the Premier League to the sort of top six in the championship. And so if he can replicate the form that he's displayed in Turkey, then, you know, West Brom have definitely got a player on their hands. Yeah, Bud, you make some excellent points. And the key thing you said is hit the ground running. And I believe this is the reason why Sam Allardyce went for him instead of Benteke. Benteke's form has been fragmented, fractured. And when you've come from a different league, 
you're normally bringing that momentum with you. And a Sam Allardyce team is not a Sam Allardyce team without a Sam Allardyce striker. And there's no doubting that he is a Sam Allardyce striker in terms of yeah. his physicality, being that reference point for his team, being able to play percentage football, putting the ball into the mixer and wanting someone to be there. And I think this guy proves that he can do that. And I think it's a very, very astute signing as well. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I actually feel like Allardyce deserves a bit of credit, um, which is something I don't say very often. But he, he's he gone out and he's signed Dieng. And this isn't the first instance of Allardyce looking a little bit outside the box in terms of signings. The easy option would have been, as you said, bringing in Benteke. But there are problems there, and he knew that. And whether this is him or the people above him at West Brom, they've, they've signed someone who definitely wasn't on the radar when Allardyce was hired. But they've done their homework, they know what they need, and they've identified a really good gap in the market. And if you go through Allardyce's teams, he has always that little player who just pops up out of nowhere. You don't expect them to sign it, and Allardyce manages to get the best out of him. And I know he's a butt of a lot of jokes, and at times rightly so, but his record is what it is, and it speaks for itself. And people think that Allardyce comes in and just coaches the defence and makes it so makes them so hard to break down that they can't get anywhere. But actually, he does do things with the attacking players that a lot of managers don't do, and he works out how to get the best of them. And he does simplify the game a lot, but, and I think that get, he gets ridiculed for that sometimes. But actually, I think a lot of the times, in a situation like West Brom, that is not the worst thing, and he's brought in a simple, effective player who will do the job. There's no risk, and I think, yeah, he, just, he deserves a lot of credit. It's a good, good signing. So moving to the next segment, um, and we're going to kick things off with you, Dej. Um, and that is going to be the worst signing of the window. Now, of course, it's going to be difficult because there wasn't too much uh, happening um, from an overall perspective. Um, but that being said, still, let us know what you feel is, is the worst signing um, of the January transfer window. Yeah, as you mentioned, there's not much business to pick from. But if I was to hang my hat on one, I would say John Philip Mateta to Crystal Palace. It's a signing for me that doesn't really make sense. Um, looking at their team, where does he fit in? You've got Wolf Prizaha, who's Palace's talisman. He scored nine goals in the Premier League so far this season. And there's one empty void beside him. That's usually filled by Benteke, Batshuayi, Ayu. Eze could even do a job up there. So I'm wondering, where does he fit in? He's coming on loan from Mines. He's got a one in three goal record. But... I don't, I don't understand it. Alone to the end of the season, you've got enough strength and depth in case there's any injuries to cope with it. So I'm just a bit baffled by that one. I don't know. The only thing I can think of is that maybe Roy Hodgson possibly wants to play him out on the wing, potentially. Maybe, but you've got Townsend, you've got Schlup, Eze, players that that Ayu can fill in, Zahar could fill in. <laughs> It's, yeah. uh, it's, um, it's one that just didn't make sense to me, mm. especially as a low. And if it was a permanent, you could say, OK, maybe they want to get rid of Benteke or obviously Bashuai is on a loan as well. There may be long term future, but being alone, it doesn't make business sense to me. Mm. I guess the thing maybe they can put him out if they're trying to counterattack in bigger games and they got him as an option to either like play it through to him and try and get him in behind teams a little bit more because none of their strikers really do that so much. You have to, If you want to do that at the moment at Palace, you've got to play through the wide players. But yeah, I agree. I think it's 
I think it's just weird. Like it's just, <laughs> it's one of those that just came, it came out of nowhere and you don't know, there's no logic behind why they're doing it. And mm. I just sort of, I understand that you feel like you need more goals. Every team that's near the bottom of the table feels like they need more goals. But if you wonder whether there might have been better options out there than this one. Maybe I'll prove us wrong, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Playing devil's advocate here, though, gents, um, could this move be um, to find a long-term successor to Christian Benteke? So we know that his deal is up in the summer. He's only got a few months left. Um, are they bringing him in to, to see what he can do and see if potentially he could fill the void um, by, uh, made by Benteke? Um, initially, it is a loan, but there is an option to buy at the end of it, um, I think for about £14 million. So should he perform uh, to expectation, then they could exercise that, that option. Um, you know, you mentioned, Dej, that he does have a, a, a one in three goal scoring record he, he's still fairly young so they might see it as you know uh, more of a potential upside on him in in the long term I think he's only sort of 23 24 yeah. and a really interesting stat is that he was um, just before leaving the Bundesliga he was ranked number one uh, in the league for big chances missed so I think he missed 12 <laughs> chances now of course it's not a, a stat that is going to cover him in glory but potentially, the thing I'm, I'm going to argue with he's, that. He, he's going to get in, uh, uh, you know, good positions, um, and and perhaps could 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 convert them if he stops snatching at them and and and, and improves his finishing. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, but I'm going to argue that because I, I can make the argument that that is actually a very good stat to have. That shows that he's making the right runs. He's getting in the right positions. So if he can touch up on his finishing, this is a player that can potentially score one in two because he's getting in the right position. So for me, that's a stat that I want to see from a striker. The, the, there is a common theme in, in this window being the, 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 the large number of loan deals. Um, and it just seems as though every club it was making deals and, and, and moves to strengthen their teams for the here and the now. You know, people that can hit the ground running, who can come in, uh, challenge for a first team place or walk straight into the first team. And it is difficult to gauge because everyone made some very shrewd and, um, you know, methodical acquisitions. Um, but given the, the theme of the here and now, I've got to look no further than um, the transfer of Armour Diallo from uh, Atalanta to, um, to uh, Manchester United. So he's an 18-year-old winger who's made five appearances for um, Atalanta and scored one goal before joining United. Um, according to rumours, initially, the fee is £19 million up front um, with performance-related add-ons, um, which could see the deal uh, go up to, I think, £37.2 million. Um, and of course, given his age uh, and he's, he's, he's inexperienced, United will see him as a, 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 a signing for the future. And of course, um, uh, Oli's gone on record to say that he's going to need time to develop and find his feet and acclimatise and so on and so forth. And he's a player that is, um, he's ambidextrous, but largely likes to operate from the right and can either sort of come in uh, on his left or take it to the byline, which is something that we don't see very often. So there is that element to it. But when you consider um, United's first team and, and who would be ahead of him in the pecking order, right? You've got, um, you know, you've got Dan James, you've got uh, Greenwood, 
Um, you know, you've got Rashford, you've got Martial, you've got Cavani, you've got so many other attacking players who could occupy those positions. And so, you know, it, it's hard to see where he'd fit in between now and the end of the season. He's not really going to feature much for United, I, I'd, I'd like to assume. And so shelling out that kind of money in the current climate that we're, we're, we're facing just seems a bit uh, a bit touchy to me. Um, and for that reason, I've, I've gone as uh, that move being the, the, the one that was the worst of the window. It's interesting you say that, Budge, because I was speaking to someone close to Man United and this boy has really taken the eye of training. He's really come in and he's made an imprint. And um, I believe he was the reason why Jesse Lingard was left out of the Manchester United squad. And in terms of Dan James, I believe he's probably, he needs a loan, I believe, to show that he's of a decent standard to start in week in, week out for Manchester United. But when I look at Diallo, I see someone that can come in maybe potentially next season and play more minutes. And you've got to take opportunity when it strikes. There was clearly a lot of interest in this player. So why not get the deal done now so in the future that you can benefit the rewards rather than him go to another club like we've seen with a Jaden Sancho, then you're going to have to pay a King's ransom. So I think it's a bit harsh, Budge. I'm not going to lie. But again, there's slim pickings in this window. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, so on Diallo, I saw, yeah, I agree with Dej. I think it's a little bit harsh on Pudge there. But <laughs> I think if you look at what United are trying to do, if you, you want to, if Solskjaer wants to play with this sort of hybrid 4 3 3, 4 2 3 1, and you assume that Pogba and Bruno Fernandes are going to be providing the creativity from the middle, then you've got that front three. And Cavani's obviously not the long term solution. I think United want to see Marcus Rashford become that number nine. They want to see him really. At the moment, you sort of have to sometimes play him off the left because of his inconsistencies. But I think they want to see him develop there. And I think they're starting to wonder now whether they've got a real problem with Anthony Martial. And I think that's something a lot of fans have been talking about. And I think United's hierarchy has been looking at it as well. Like, let's be honest, he hasn't kicked on in the way you would have wanted in the last sort of three or four years. And I wonder whether they looked at Diallo. They, you've got to assume they've been scouting him for the last six months to a year or so before they made the move. And they just think that with everything that's going on, as Desh said, getting Jane Sancho, that's going to be really, really hard. So if you can bring in a kid who you know has got the raw potential and let him sort of sit around in the reserves and maybe play the odd game here and there for the next six months, then maybe next season you can sort of look at going into a front three with Diallo, Mason Greenwood and Marcus Rashford. On paper, that could work really well. Obviously, it depends. There's a lot of factors there. You need Greenwood to step up. You need Rashford to step up. And you need Diallo to adapt. So I can see why Bouge is saying it's a gamble. And with the finances involved with the, with the um, add-ons, it's a risk. But I can I can make a case for it in my head as to why United have done it. If they feel like this player could be worth £150 million in four or five years, is a small price to pay. But that's a big if. And United's track record recently isn't exactly perfect, is it? Yeah, and we saw him <laughs> hit the ground running straight away, actually, in his debut against Liverpool under 23s. He scored a goal. He looked good. He looked sharp. So I think this is a signing for the long term. And I think Budge has been a bit harsh here. <laughs> <laughs> I did say, the theme being here and now, that was my caveat. That was my hedge. <laughs> Let's hear yours then, Pete. What what do you feel was the uh, the, the the worst transfer of this current window? Well, as we said, this is a little hard to do. And I picked a player, and I've got to stress this right eye. This is no reflection on the player at all. But the signing of Olivier Mincham 
from Celtic to Marseille on loan has resolved today in Andre Villas-Boas tendering his resignation at Marseille. And I, I really don't think this is any reflection on Hincham at all. Like, I think he's a perfectly decent player. Maybe he hasn't developed in the way we would have liked when he first went to Celtic, but he's a, he's a really solid player. But in the press conference today, Villas-Boas said that he's handed in his resignation and is, he, this is a, Hincham is a player that he deliberately and went out of his way to say, no, I don't want to sign him when they sold Morgan Sanson to Aston Villa. They're very different players in the way they operate. Um, um, I think this is just, this is this is going to end up being the straw that broke the camel's back and Marseille are going to lose one of the best managers that they've had since Marcelo Bielsa left. And he's, we saw the process at the weekend. It is such a badly run club at the moment. It is almost staggering. Marseille is a city which is football obsessed and the fans are amazing. It really shouldn't be hard to run Marseille. All you've got to do is have a manager who knows how to get the best out of players, play exciting football, and will bring through attacking players. I don't even think the Marseille fans necessarily expect to be competing for the league and title. They know what the deal is with PSG right now. But you want to be in those top four slots. You want to be given a good account of yourselves. This season, they haven't. Villas-Boas has admitted that's on him. But I've got to say, from my perspective, what he's doing with the players he's got and with the limitations he's working with is amazing. And I know he's paid very, very well, but he's said today that he doesn't want he doesn't want to take any money. He just wants to walk away because he's had enough. And Fairsbos is such a good manager and I can't believe how badly Marseille have treated him. To go around and to sign a player that he has said he doesn't want, I know there's talk that he might leave in the summer and I know that you've got to try and think for your future. Maybe you see that as in jam. But you talk to Celtic and you say, look, we want to get this deal done, but we're going to wait till the summer. You don't bring him in when the manager who is there has said that he doesn't want him. That is just unbelievably poor management. I just don't understand what is happening there. And it leaves in Cham in a perilous position because you're mm-hmm. coming to a club where you know the manager doesn't want you. So psychologically, you're meant to be starting a new venture, a new chapter in your career, but you started off on the wrong foot. So that puts pressure on him to, to you know, hit the ground running. And as you mentioned, this is no slant on him. This is hierarchy issues. At all football clubs and most football clubs, the board will present players to the manager and say, yeah, what do you think about him? You'll get the final sign-off. But for Villas Boas to not sign it off and for them to bring in a player, it's, yeah, it just reeks of problems. So, yeah, that's a strange one. Yeah, and I think it's almost like a juxtaposition when you look at the true profiles of the players. Morgan Sampson has gone to Aston Villa, an energetic, you know, well-rounded, gets about the pitch, makes a lot of tackles. And then you get Encham, that's more of a flair player, laid back, creative mm. midfielder. The profiles just doesn't make sense, to be fair. It's mad. And like this comes from, they fired Anthony Zubizierta in the summer. That was the guy who bought BS Bars to Marseille. And I just, I, I, I just struggled to see what they're doing. And you listen to the way the owners talk about the club and they just treat it as a business. And I understand you don't buy a football club to sort of like, be a nice person. You buy football club to make money is what they all do. Mm. But Marseille is different. Marseille, it, I know all fans think the club is different, but Marseille is different. It is a special club and it should be one of those which is really competing, not just to the hierarchy of France, but the hierarchy of Europe. And I think their demise, which is going to probably get worse, I imagine, in the next six months or so, given they're ninth in the table, it's a, it just speaks to the wider issues within French football, which is just staggering given that they're the reigning World Cup champions. Like, it just doesn't make any sense that this is the world champions cannot put together a decent league. It just, yeah, it's just staggering. And I feel for Vieres Bavas because I think he's been dealt a really bad hand. Yeah, you raise a really valid point there, Pete, around 
uh, Marseille's position in the in the table at the moment. So they are ninth, um, but they've got two games in hand and are, and are four points off fifth. So this is literally make or break, right? This this is a very pivotal uh, moment in time. And you know, um, of course, you, you mentioned that um, AVB's come out and, and and spoken about handing in his re resignation. Um, we'd hope for the sake of the club, given the fact that he's a top manager, that, you know, there can be some sort of agreement reached or, or some plans put in place to, to hold on to him. Um, and I think if not, then uh, Marseille are in a very, very precarious position. Uh, <laughs> things could very quickly go left. Unravel. Boy, I'm bending the rules a bit. I'm going to go with worse business instead of worse transfer. And I'm going to go with Brighton letting go of Matty Ryan. At the time, I said it on Eurosport that it just doesn't make sense to me because I see this guy as a very good goalkeeper and I think Sanchez kept a clean sheet against Tottenham, had a very solid performance, but I just can't see how he's a better goalkeeper than Matty Ryan. And I think, let's say if Sanchez gets an injury, what are Brighton going to do next? So I think keeping Matty Ryan until the end of the season would have made sense. And I think Arsenal have really gained from this horrible situation. I think it's a strange one, but just to play devil's advocate, I remember Graham Potter saying that he wants to go in a different direction and he wants to put his stamp on that Brighton team now. And by him bringing Matt Ryan out of the fold, that's probably him putting his stamp. He's playing a different style of football. And if he thinks, you know, Sanchez caters better to the football, then that's his prerogative. I agree that Matt Ryan's a top keeper, but also managers have their different agendas and football's a game of opinion. So you've got to respect Graham Potter's opinion. Yeah, but then I understand you saying that they want to go in another direction, but what is that direction? When I look at Brighton, they're a ball-playing team, they play progressive football. And for me, Matty Ryan is one of the best at doing that. Every time I see him distribute the ball, he's hitting pinpoint passes. So I can't understand why he does not fit the profile of Brighton Football Club. Also, there's no option to, there's no option to buy. Like, this is, if, you, if you want to go in a different direction, you put an option to buy. It doesn't have to be 20 million, but you put an option from, I don't know, fair deal from, I don't know, 8 million, 12 million, something like that. At least it, it yeah. shows that you see the natural progression is Matt Ryan eventually leaving your club. Whereas at the moment, he's now there at Arsenal and obviously they'll get to see him in training, but they won't get to see him in a match unless Leno gets injured. So, I, I, yeah, I, I agree. Arsenal done well to get a good cover in, but they got, if they want to buy him and he hasn't played, who knows what a fair price is? Someone's going to get shafted in that deal. So, it just doesn't make it just doesn't make any sense. I, I, yeah, I mean, I feel I feel for Ryan in a way because he obviously he obviously must have known he was on his way out and he's gone to Arsenal, which is the club he supports. But I can see. I think as we said of this and when we talked about it on the pod before, I can see a situation where in six months' time he's back at Brighton and doesn't know where he's going to go play. Yeah, yeah. I've got to agree with you on that, Pete. Of course, uh, I'm uh, biased because I'm an Arsenal fan. And so having seen the performances that Renison uh, put in for us, I, I <laughs> was all for uh, us bringing in uh, Matt Ryan on, on, on loan. But of course, as you say, when, when that six months has... Uh, come to an end and he does return to Brighton, he, he's really in, in, in no man's land. And then just to round things off, in the final segment, we are going to be discussing deals that shoulda, woulda, coulda. Um, kick things off for us, please, Dot. Which is the move that you thought was absolutely going to happen, but fell through? 
or, or there were rumours that could potentially happen but didn't. Again, Butch, I'm going to bend the rules again, but I'm going to go with Reese Nelson. Obviously, okay. there was no strong, strong interest in him, but I think he's just a player that needs a move to play football consistently. We've seen, you know, Joe Willock go out on loan. Ainsley making an announce, go out on loan to play football. And I think Reese Nelson was the third party to potentially go out and loan and play football. And I think with Reese Nelson, it's a confidence issue. We all know he's got the ability. When he went on loan to Germany, he hit the ground running and he was playing fantastic football. So for me, with Reese, it's about having that run of games, having that belief from the manager. And in the summer, there was initial interest in Reese Nelson, as we reported on the Beautiful Game podcast. Southampton were interested, Crystal Palace were interested. And obviously, in this window, in the final weeks, a few clubs in Spain were actually interested in bringing Reese Nelson in. Valencia, there was also talk of Una Emre potentially liking him. So I think with Reese Nelson, is he going to get the opportunities at Arsenal in the second half of the season? I'm not quite sure, to be totally honest with you. No, I agree with everything you said there. Like He's a player that needs a move. When you look at Arsenal's forward positions, Emil Smith-Rowe, Bakaya Saka, William, Odegaard. Odegaard been brought in now. It's just stockpiled with attacking talent. Where does he fit into that? Where is he going to get the regular minutes? It's probably going to have to come with the under-23s. And he needs to be playing regular first-team men's football, not youth-team football. I think he's progressed from that level. And we've seen him in games against Liverpool where he's shown that, listen, he's got... He's got special ability, so he needs to flee the nest and start playing regularly. And I spoke to a few, you know, contacts close to Arsenal and they said, listen, this boy has all the ability. He's one of the most talented youngsters at the club, but it's just about showing that ability on a consistent basis. And I think at Arsenal, he's not going to have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, a particularly interesting one. Um, when you look at the competition that he has in his position, mm. Um, you know, you obviously already mentioned there all of the players that would be ahead of him in the pecking order. When you add to that, the fact that Arsenal are no longer in the FA Cup, for example, mm. typically some, you know, fringe players would get more of a, a, a chance to play. You know, that, that's limiting his potential playing time even further. So it is really difficult to see where he would fit in and, and how he's going to get minutes. Um, but yeah, uh, of course, he's he's got, he's left with no other option but to, to try and fight for, for a first uh, team position and, and, and show Arteta that he does have the goods in, in training. Pete, how about you? What do you feel was the the, the, the deal that should have happened but didn't? For me, it's got to be uh, Deli Ali not going to PSG. I think this was the big one that was sort of dominating the window for the last week or so, building up to deadline day. And I know, I know even in the early days, the reports were the Spurs were not keen. But I just thought that they would, by the end of it, they would relent and look at it and be like, look, he's it's deadline day or the day before deadline day and Deli Ali is still pushing for this move. He clearly wants it. Let's do the right thing by him and let him go. Mourinho doesn't fancy him for whatever reason. It's unfair to keep him here against his will. And Spurs have let him down so badly by not letting him go. I know they put out that weak thing about um, Giovanni Lestalso's injury and they're concerned about that. They want Ali's cover. That is just rubbish. If, if they, if they, honestly, it, no, it is rubbish because they, if they're concerned about that, then they, when Spurs had other injuries at other stages of the season and suspensions, Ali would have played more and they haven't. You're not getting anything from Gareth Bale. That is abundantly clear. So why are you not playing Ali more even in the wide positions? You can't say it's because... Mourinho doesn't want to play with a 10 because he wants Son and Kane close to each other. I don't care. Play him deeper or play him wide. He has got the ability. And you haven't given him the chance to show that. 
And when you have played him, it's been three months into the last game, so of course he looks rusty. Going to PSG would have been perfect for him because there is little to no pressure in the league. I know they lost to Lorient on the weekend, but realistically, they should still win the league. So you can have the time to sort of bed yourself in. You know Mauricio Pochettino will give you the time to develop and play where you want to play. And above all else, you'll be feeding and you'll be moving with Neymar, Kylian Mbappe, Angel Di Maria. That is unbelievably good for his confidence. And I am firmly convinced if he had gone to PSG, he would have gone to Euro 2021 and he probably could have even been starting as well. That's how much I think that move would have helped him. Instead, Tottenham denied him the move and they denied him the opportunity to go to a major tournament with his country because there's no chance it's going now. And I think that is really bad of them. And I think Spurs and Mourinho need to look at themselves and the way they've treated Dele Alli. And I think it's really unfair on him as a player and as a person. I agree with you, Pete. I mean, this is the dark side of football. When players are frozen out, he's got no opportunity to get back into the team. And it's funny you say that because I spoke to someone close to Delhi a few days ago and they reported that he's baffled, bemused, confused as to why he's not being allowed to leave when clearly he's got no future at um, Tottenham. We saw in the Capital One Cup game against Stoke where he was hauled off and there's clearly a broken relationship between him and Mourinho. And it comes back to that argument of Levy wanting him to keep him, Mourinho wanting him to go. And obviously it seems that Levy's won, but Mourinho is the manager. So his decision counts. And you can't see him really getting minutes before the, the Euros. And that will cost him a place. And football doesn't wait for no man, unfortunately. We've got so many youngsters coming through. Grealish, Madison, Foden. These players are all above him in the pecking order. And... It just seems that he's going to be the odd man out. And when and where is he going to rekindle his career? I'm reluctant to put too much of the blame on Mourinho. I know I dug him out a bit earlier, but he deserves some of the blame because I think he often overlooks very talented players for whatever little agendas he wants to do to light a fire up on the squad. But he did this before. And I think back to his time at Chelsea when he ostracised both Kevin De Bruyne and Juan Mata. Now, it was clear that neither of them were going to play under him. And obviously, it was also abundantly clear they were both very talented and deserved to play under him. But Chelsea did what they felt was right. They got 37.1 million or whatever it was for Mata. And they eventually got a King's Ransom for De Bruyne as well. And they made the moves. Initially, De Bruyne went out on loan and then he signed permanently and obviously went back to City. You don't, If you don't want a player, you should move him on. And if you're not going to play him under any circumstances, then move him on. And my issue with that is if you think you want the cover, why are you not looking at one of the kids in the academy like Harvey White, who went out to Portsmouth on loan? If you're not going to play Dali Ali and you want to, you're worried about the cover if he goes out on loan and say Los Alto gets injured, then you've got the talent in that squad. You've got players like Harvey White, you've got players like Troy Parrott. Maybe they're not ready yet, but why not trust them now and throw them in? It's just petulance keeping Dali Ali there and it's just classic Daniel Levy all over. Dej, moving to you now. What was the, uh, the the transfer that should have happened but didn't? Patrick Van Arnhol to Arsenal. There was a period where speculation reached fever pitch. Everyone thought it was going to be going, you know, with his contract running in the summer. And obviously I've got a very good relationship with Pat and his representatives. So I spoke to his representatives and asked, what's going on with Pat? anything new and they're like no no interest the same way you're seeing the news is the same way we're seeing the news and I think looking at it that's a signing that makes sense when you look at Kieran Tierney he's 23 he's the number one choice going forward but right now he's injured and Arsenal could do with some natural cover we've obviously said Kolasinac leaving Cedric can play in that position but obviously he's not naturally left-footed so I think in terms of providing that balance and the energy 
that Pat attacks with, a move to Arsenal makes sense. And I thought that was going to happen when I saw the news, but it didn't for whatever yeah, reason. I don't think this still needs to be rushed because Patrick Van Aanholt is going to be a free agent in the next few months unless Crystal Palace come to an agreement to keep him, which I don't see. So this is something that can be revisited in the summer. So I don't understand why there was such a surge of rumours that Pat is going to go to Arsenal now when he's open to move to another English club in a few months' time. And if not, he can go abroad and sign a pre-contract agreement as soon as possible. So for me, Patrick Van Anho is in a strong position. Yeah, but as you mentioned, key point, he can agree a pre-contract with a foreign club. So Arsenal could have put themselves to the top of the order offering a, a nominal fee, maybe three, four million to acquire his services early. And this is a player I still believe has got three or four very good years in him. So I think Arsenal could have really preempted it and signed him early rather than waiting. And he can have an impact now because Arsenal are in a stage of necessity with Kieran Tierney's injury. It's weird with Melan Nars going as well because that's another player who could, who could cover that position. I mean, do you think... Arteta's looking at Bukayo Saka and thinking he can be the ultimate cover if they need him. I mean, I mean, it's obviously, obviously, if you're an Arsenal fan, that is disappointing because you want him to be playing higher on the pitch. But from Arteta's perspective, I guess that might be where he's looking because maybe he. We were talking earlier about the options in front of Reese Nelson. Maybe Arteta's looking at that and saying, "Look, yeah, if I need to move Saka back, I can." But again, I think it's weird. You let two players who can play that position go. You don't bring one in. Pete, so, just to buttress your point, I think some of Bakayo Saka's best football has actually come from the left-back position. I know he's hit a rich vein of form from the right wing slot and Arsenal fans don't want to see him, you know, removed from that position. But if you scroll back to last season in the Europa League and in the back end of the Premier League last season, Bakayo Saka made around 11 assists from left-back. So for me, he's a great second choice. With Bakayo, I don't want him to become a jack of all trades, a master of none. I think in this right forward position, he's nailing it. He's mastering it. I want him to stay there for a few years, hone his talents, develop himself and progress going forward. All this left back, right mid, central mid. Obviously, it's good for a young player to improve their game intelligence. And he's one of those players with elite game intelligence and temperament for his age. But I think let him stay in that position and continue to develop. That's my view. Well, look at Melo Niles. He was shifted all over the place. Mm. I don't. I, th- I think Saka was a better better at the same age. But Melo Niles came through. He played pretty much everywhere down both flanks and through the middle. And the only places he didn't play was centre-back or up front. He played everywhere else. And now he's had to go out on loan to get more regular football because other players with specialised roles have come in and taken his places. So, yeah, I agree with you, Dej. I think you'd be much better off keeping Saka where he is. Mm-hmm. And just to circle back to the initial point that you made, Dej, I think um, Arsenal should have, uh, you know, really, really you know, um, gone out uh, on a limb and, and, and uh, uh, brought in um, uh, Van Aanholt into the club. I think ultimately it was the, the form and the performances of Cedric of recent weeks that then essentially made acquiring a left back more of a, a nice to have than a have to have. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, I think if he hadn't put in the performances that he has done recently, then ab- absolutely Arsenal would have gone and, and, and moved heaven and earth to get the deal done. But I think because of the fact that he has performed quite well and, and from a technical standpoint, I think he's probably our, our, our most technical fullback, you know, with either foot, left and right. He, he's a re- really good passer and crosser of the ball. 
And even with his weaker foot, he, he can sort of swing it in, in the box as well. And I think that probably then just, you know, allowed Arsenal to, to, to err on the side of caution a bit more in terms of going out and in, in, in recruiting in the, in the market. So, you know, uh, yeah, it, it, it will be interesting to see what uh, Van Aanholt does do in, in the summer. Of course, you, you mentioned that we, we had the opportunity to interview him on our, on our platform in, in, in the Beautiful Game podcast. Um, and, you know, he spoke about the fact that going back home to his native country is also an option. And the fact that throughout his career, he's not had a chance to play there, um, that doesn't, um, you know, interest him. And so I think that we, we could very easily see him, him return uh, back home. You know, he's obviously spoke about how, how important family is to him and the fact that he's got loads of family out there. That could be ultimately one of the, the big factors that um, influence his, his final decisions. One that I wanted to uh, chat to you guys about is one that for me is absolutely goes in that category of uh, no-brainer. Now, obviously, we, we know that typically strikers have much higher price tags relatively to other players because they're the guys that win you the, the games, right? They're the ones that put the ball in the back of the net more often than not. They are the, the Rolex to a well-fitted suit, as it were. Um, and with the current climate and the fact that clubs are cash-strapped, um, it makes no sense to me that a, a striker that is uh, 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 tried and tested and proven at the top level would be available for free and absolutely no one take a sniff at him. And that is Diego Costa, right? So he uh, agreed to terminate his contract with uh, Atletico in December, which makes him a free, um, a free agent. Uh, back, and, and all football fans will remember him back in uh, the Premier League at Chelsea. He, he was a, an absolute nuisance and a fawn in the side of defenders. He's had two 20-plus um, goal-scoring um, goal seasons. Um, and although his capacity for goal-scoring has dwindled somewhat over in Spain, he is still a threat. He is still gonna, you know, chip in with some goals and and more than anything, he's just gonna be a nuisance. And, you know, he's gonna get the odd penalty here or get a center half sent off there. And all of that, it, it, it amounts to something, right? And and particularly in the in the case of um Mourinho and Spurs, given that they've been so heavily reliant on Harry Kane, his goals and his assists, and the fact that he's injured now, and then you look around the, the rest of the of, of the, the squad in terms of that position. Mourinho clearly doesn't have much faith in uh, Carlos Vinicius. Steven Bergwijn isn't particularly prolific, prolific. And Gareth Bale looks like he's not got anything left in the tank. So signing Diego Costa for, on, on a short-term deal for the rest of the season seemed a bit like a no-brainer. He's an archetypal Mourinho player from a, from a mentality perspective. You know, he, he loves his guys to be rough and rugged and, um, and, and, and in your face. And so it just seemed like it was it was the, the simplest thing to do. Uh, but for whatever reason, that move didn't happen. And I'm, I'm quite perplexed at why, you know, not even just Spurs, but any other team in the Premier League didn't try to make a move for him. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that, guys. It's got to be something we don't know. I think the way he left Atletico Madrid, he came as a bolt from the blue, he came out of nowhere. It, there were no sort of indications as to what you could sort of read between the lines and think that there was some sort of personal issues that Costa had to deal with, whether that was him himself or his family back in Brazil. 
Diego Simeone talked about how it was important that they they felt it was important to do right by the player and let him go. Um, and I think there was some suggestion that if he had moved to a big European club, that I think would have been due some kind of compensation because otherwise they'd advise, they would have wanted to get a fee from him in January. I I don't know what's I don't know what's I don't know what's going on. I don't know anything about the player off the pitch. I don't know anything about with his inner circle. So I don't know what's happening. I wonder whether something's happened. He just needs to get his head right. I know there are reports circulating that he'd been offered to West Ham. I didn't really know where they'd come from, whether that was actually true or not, or whether they were sort of just trying to put things out to sort of make it look like they were being busy on the deadline day. I think there's a, I think there's a much bigger story there that's not being told at the moment for whatever reason, and maybe it's a story that will never be told. Um, and I reckon that over sort of next two or three months, maybe leading into the summer, there'll be a bit more clarity about what exactly is going on with Diego Costa. Because I think... Even, as you said, he, he's not the player he was, but he sort of showed in glimpses this season what he could be. I mean, I know that Atletico didn't get to pair him with Luis Suarez as much as they would have wanted, but you've just got to imagine that if there were no red flags there, someone would have made a little offer and seen. And I don't believe that the only deterrent was his wages. And I think that either it's the clause of Atletico or there's something going on with him. And I think that's got to be why he, has, he hasn't gone to anywhere else yet. Pete, I think the bigger story as you said I'm speculating here is 19 goals in four years since leaving Chelsea is this a player that can still score on a consistent basis I'm not sure Pete and I think when you look at Diego Costa if you take away the top six clubs in the Premier League any other club that he went to he will arguably be the highest paid player is that going to be great for a dressing room if Diego Costa comes in doesn't perform doesn't score the goals that they expect him to score. And then other players are like, hold on, he's on 120,000. What's happening here? I'm not happy anymore. So I think for dressing room harmony, Diego Costa doesn't make sense for 14 out of 20 of the Premier League clubs. Yeah, And injuries as well. Injuries come into it as well. This isn't a player that's been readily available. And I remember him leaving the Premier League under a bit of a cloud. There was that thing with Antonio Conte, He was sort of shopping himself out to China, then he wanted to stay. And I think your reputation, you know, sticks when things like that happen. And for Premier League clubs, would they want to associate themselves with Diego Costa? His wages are big. He's a big character. He's someone that alters a dressing room. He's a dressing room architect. When he goes in, he's someone that sort of sets the standard. So do you want to be shifting that in the middle of a season? Or would you rather say, you know what, we'll play one of the kids or we'll play a Vinicius or we'll play Mika Antonio up front for the rest of the season? I think that's much more of a viable option. I think the sense of him going back to Brazil. I really do. I think I think was, I think there's enough clubs in Europe who will look at it and just be like, unless Unless he comes on a really reasonable wage packet, I just don't think you could justify it for the reasons that you guys just outlined. And I think it makes a lot more sense for him to go home and be able to play in a country that he knows and loves and he'll be closer to his family. Like he's Everything that you heard about him when he was at Chelsea, he's unbelievably family-orientated. It's the most important thing to him by a country mile. So if you can go out to Brazil, and the, it's not that the level of Brazil is poor. Like it's, it's one of the best leagues in the world when you go outside the top five or six in Europe. Like It's still a high level. And I think a lot of clubs would be very willing to take him on both from the on the pitch opportunities and obviously the marketing opportunities off the pitch as well. Most certainly, certainly an interesting one. Um, and he wasn't just the he wasn't the only striker that I was I was surprised that um, more Premier League moves 
uh, more Premier League teams um, uh, made it um, didn't make a move for. You know, we saw Mandzukic as well go to AC Milan. I thought, you know, someone was going to take a punt on him in the Premier League. Um, but I guess, yeah, we'll, we'll have to wait and see how... He's how... got a very good agent, by the way. The amount of moves he's been getting at Leicester for buying. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Who's his agent? <laughs> <laughs> I think that pretty much um, is it for today. Then we're gonna we're gonna round off and and leave it there. It's been an absolute pleasure. We hope all of you guys that are tu- have tuned in and, and listened to these episodes have enjoyed it as much as we have. Again, reminding you, it's the Beautiful Game podcast and Eurosport collaboration, um, and and that's going to be pretty much it. That's 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 a, a roundup of the transfer window, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we'll uh, catch you again sometime soon. I really enjoyed this. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 